You are listening to the Thundercling Podcast. Podcast. <laughs> Just rippling abs. How are we going to get fucking sponsored by these guys if we can't even get the name right? Did you say you're doing wrestling moves? Oh god, I'm bleeding. Jason Kale's walk around on stilts. It's fucked up. Hi, I'm Feedy. And I am Dave. And you're listening to the Thundercling Thunder Podcast. Coming to you live, live from into Feedy's house. From Feedy's house into your ear holes. Forever into your brain. Hey, um, you had a special vacation this weekend. What did you see? I was <laughs> very musical. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you for asking. I was in Vail. For, the, for the Vail World Bouldering Cup thing. The only World Cup on American soil, Correct. mind you. And it was freaking cool. Dude, I mean, how was it to go, like, to be in, like, there for qualies, well, and then you're there uh, for semis, and then oh, you're there oh, for finals, okay, and you, okay. you get to see oh. the... You get... So, actually, I might have actually been in the library but, for 99% of the whole thing. Oh, and that's because that's where, like, the athlete staging area was. It was at the Vail Library, and you were in there, like... Uh, give him massages well, and be like, okay, uh, well, cool your jets, Dave. Jeez. No. Oh. What were, I, it, I, I forgot that my online classes started. So I had to spend my, my day in the library. Oh, <laughs> so I missed most of it, but I actually managed to catch the bouldering, the last boulder of the men's finals. So, you know what? It was pretty much like I was there for the whole thing. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you did see the last, boulder of the men finals at least no it was kind of that's, a tragedy I, I missed a lot of it that's too bad dude i'm sorry <laughs> about that how did the classes go uh, it was good it was really sad knowing i was like walking the opposite direction of the whole crowd everyone's walking towards the games and i was like all right this is a mistake but i gotta own it <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're responsible man yeah you're like really growing up becoming a responsible adult man i'm adult man. a feedy man Hey, you know who wasn't? Was Daniel Woods at the World <laughs> Cup? Was he? Co- <laughs> was no. he competing there? No, I think as we all learned, Daniel Woods was like a little bit busy. What was he doing? Was he practicing he for was, the next World Cup? No, no. You know, Daniel Woods these days he's more about wine drinking for the and crushing the sicky sicky narnar in the wherever he might wherever, be. Wherever, yeah, yeah, and getting some dope tats. He got a tattoo. He got a tattoo. He did not get a tattoo of a neck tie. No. He got a tattoo of, uh, of a neck eye. You know, controversial in the climbing community, yet to be seen how it will be perceived in the long term. But you know what? My, <laughs> I'm optimistic about its reception. I, um, I have a pretty hot take. Sometimes bold decisions are met with controversy, and in hindsight, we actually end up deciding that they were not that good of a decision. Yeah. yeah. I have a hot take. <laughs> All right. Hit me with it. I don't give a shit. One single poo-poo. I mm-hmm. think if you get a neck, neck tattoo, man, I saw it. It's a big old eye on the yeah. right side of his neck. That's fine. <laughs> I mean, you got to definitely, if you're going to be so bold, you got to prepare yourself for some uh, backlash. But, you know, who? who <laughs> if you get a tattoo on your neck, you do not care what people say. Let's be honest. The majority of the best boulders in the world are kind of characters. And this does not surprise me one bit from Daniel Woods. No, good for him, man. You know what? I think, though, I will never stand <laughs> on the right side of him while he's looking forward and that huge fucking <laughs> globular eye is staring at me. Okay, what if he got his, like, 
his uh, cornea tattooed, so it was just black. So then he just went black eyes, <laughs> eyeball on his neck. You know what I was thinking? That would maybe freak me out a bit. <laughs> it's so scary. Yeah, go full Jason Kale. Yeah, so <laughs> next time Daniel gets drunk, instead of like um, drawing all over his face, you should black out his cornea. Mm-hmm. I think that's what I'll do. Oh, yeah, be, you're hanging out with him and you watch him? Well, that's what you're going to no. do? No, <laughs> I'm in the library studying. Sad. <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, well, good, good on Daniel. I think that who cares, but all that social media stuff kind of leads us into our guest today. Yes. Our topic of choice. Who did we have on? We had Chris Winter, the executive director of access fund, the big boss, the big boss, the new big boss. Correct. He just started in January. Yeah. But apparently he seems to be killing it. He hit the ground running. He hit the ground running. It's a pretty strong organization over there. Yeah. I was personally taken aback because in my head i'd always seen the access fund as this ethereal body of not necessarily the most organized group but it just kind of you know like out there fighting for the climbers but Mm -hmm. we actually went to the headquarters which is in boulder yeah that's what we did and i was like holy crap this is a legitimate operation (laughs) yeah yeah it's uh full of environmental lawyers and smart people um and chris is an environmental lawyer and he took over yeah like you said in january he's Mm -hmm. a new executive director um not gonna talk too much about him but i do want to say uh we were super psyched he could sneak us in because uh as some of you know outdoor retailer is coming up next week yeah and the access fund has something going on like every Every 15 minutes Mm -hmm. at the access fund and so we had the interview at seven at night and pretty much everybody was still there working. Correct. So he had uh, an hour to spare for us, and we're so thankful. And um, what did we focus on, dude? We talked a lot. Well, Dave here <laughs> came in hot. He's been really simmering about this topic. I of, can't stop thinking about it. He's struggling with the amount of crowding we're seeing at our local crags. And Dave wants to know what's going to happen. Dave's- and the, atten- the attendant issues. Of overcrowding, Correct. right? Not, I don't care if there's a crowd there, but, um, you know, we're, we're struggling with issues like erosion, yeah. social trails, micro trash, people taking shits. Dave's worried that we're not everywhere. Gonna have, we're not gonna have the same local crags we have now in like ten years. They're just gonna be gone. Worried about all kinds of stuff, yeah. man, and thinking, you know, maybe it is time for a permit-based climbing system if climbers can't get their act together. However. We're still in a situation where we have plenty of time to solve all these problems. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing about it is every climber is to blame. All right. of us. We're all to blame. Yep. So we can all happily be a part of the solution to solve issues like, you know, erosion at crag bases and tick marks everywhere and climbing on wet rock. Like don't Don't do it. Fucking do it. Yeah, Joe's was a... Uh... Joe's was in bad shape last time I was there. It seemed like a lot of rock we saw was just like getting broken or had broken. Yeah. Like, it, it's always evolving at mm-hmm. Joe's. And that's but, good. but I will say we went into that interview maybe with some kind of pessimistic outlooks and we came out with a lot of positive positivity about the future. Uh, the Access Fund is really doing quite a bit to steward all, like these these questions in the right direction. Yeah, their stewardship programs. Um I mean, you all know they're great, but the most important thing is they are trying to build an army of advocates because, you know, we have millions and millions of climbers now. We don't have mentors anymore. We can't. It's unsustainable for everybody to have a mentor. So hopefully the access fund and the gyms and all of our behavior in the outdoors will combine to make Mm -hmm. like this army of stewards and advocates and like 
quote unquote little rangers little ranger ricks to oh. clean up the crime. and with that ladies and gentlemen please put your hands together for <laughs> Chris Winter <laughs> I love these big bottles because they're a little bit more social. Yeah, you <laughs> like to share from the same bottle, well, you know? it depends on what your habit is, I guess. That's true. <laughs> um, where do we start? Well, I want to know is, who are you, Chris? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how, did you become, place to start? how did you Who is this guy? Point? Where did he come from? Yeah. <laughs> how did you get into the offices? Yeah, I walked in the back door. Yeah, how did, so Brady left, yeah. and then Zach Leshuey was the interim for a while. Yeah. And then it's the era of Chris Winters. Yeah, so um, uh, so I started January 1st, pretty much. And so um, Brady left mid-year. There was like a four, five-month recruitment process. And threw my hat in the ring. I'd been living in Portland, Oregon for about 20 years, mm -hmm. working as an environmental attorney, working for a nonprofit out there. Oh, so, whoa, okay. Yeah, so I'm um, doing a lot of work on public lands management, um, a lot of litigation in federal court for conservation groups, and I did a couple projects for the Access Fund on a volunteer basis while I was out there in the Northwest. So ended up being a really good fit and started, yeah, right about the beginning of the year. And I'm guessing you're you're also quite the climber yourself or uh well in it. I mean not here in Boulder. I wouldn't rank as quite a climber, but <laughs> That's a tough one. I've been climbing for a long time. So I guess now maybe I'm moving into my golden years, you might say, but, um, How no, old are it's, you? I'm 47. So 47. yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of old. Depends. I mean, 47 is like the new 37. I I'm think. right with yeah. you, man. Yeah. I'm going to be 45 in like a month. Really? Do you uh -huh. feel old? I feel like my recovery. <laughs> Dave's always hurt. Is uh, really the but, recovery is hard. The warming up yeah. is hard, but I feel like I'm climbing harder. You like, know, you know what I've got right now is like this arthritis thing in one of my oh. toes. Which I'm like, God, that really feels that like an old thing. You know, it's just like my joints are getting all <laughs> swollen and stuff. And my doctor's like, oh, it might be early onset gout or something. I'm like, oh, man. Oh, this doctors is like, are so good this is like, planting the seeds of fear in your head. Like, total, oh, it could be this awful thing. Total, I don't know. Total buzzkill. I hate going to doctors. And so my dad was a doctor. I still hate going to doctors. And now I'm just like, oh, man, I don't know. I hope I don't get more of these things that like creep in after mm -hmm. a while. No well, it's all coming, dude. It's all coming. Father time is undefeated. I know. I know. He's got to hold on for well, as I think, long as yeah, he the, can. You got to stay active, man. That's the thing. Totally. And that's yep. what your doctor would tell you. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so when you got to the access fund, what was like, uh, what was surprising for you or what was, how eye opening was that experience? Yeah. Um, man, there's so much, I've learned so much in the last five, five or six months. So, um, one of the things that I was, um, really surprised to learn is just how amazing the staff is here. And so many years of knowledge and people who are super smart, super dedicated, no climbing inside and out, mm -hmm. um, know everybody in the business. Yeah. And so, and just have worked hard over the years to position the access fund in a place where we can really have an impact on what the future of climbing looks like. And so I felt super lucky 
to be able to step into this context. Like when I got this job, yeah. it just hit the ground in Boulder and be like, man, like, oh, this is already set up Oh yeah, for me to just kind yeah. of plug in and like have a little bit of impact and hopefully help the organization do a lot of really good work. Right, and cool. so I just felt like I didn't have to like come in and just create a whole bunch of stuff. It's just like help everybody mm-hmm. do a better job and um, support them in what they're already doing. As somebody who has always seen the access fund from like an outsider's perspective as this kind of figure enigmatic figure that I know is out there helping climbers, but yeah. <laughs> it's cool to come into the office and see like, you know, it's just people working. Yeah. And, brick and uh, mortar. Brick and mortar. Yeah. Brick it's and mortar. Some ethereal body. But. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, our, our global headquarters are right here in Boulder, right? But we got people all over the country. We got Chattanooga, Tennessee, Austin, Texas, Seattle, I mean, New Hampshire, California. Yeah. We got three conservation teams that mm-hmm. drive around the country all year long. Um, we're all over the place about that at some point. Yeah. I want to know, like, what does a day to day operations look like here? Here? Yeah. What do, what does the uh, employees of the access fund really try to do? So it totally depends on who it is. Um, so here in Boulder, our HQ, um, you know, our executive team is here, development director, operations director, our membership program and marketing communications. And so a lot of what we focus here on in Boulder is revenue generation and program management. Yeah. Um, basically like tracking the organization, making sure it's running smoothly, um, that everything's uh, accounted for, um, that all of our employees are taken care of and that the programs are running the way that they're supposed mm-hmm. to. And then the folks that do a lot of the program work, for instance, the person who does our public policy program, Eric Murdoch, is based in Estes Park which is pretty close, but he basically is like on the phone and emailing all day with land managers in Washington, D.C., with politicians, with staffers for politicians, setting up Climb the Hill, mm-hmm. setting up um, uh, projects with professional climbers to plug their voices into conservation and stewardship. And so he does that all out of Estes Park. And then we have people like Zachary, who's in um, who's in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Yeah. Like yeah. he's basically working on a big national forest plan out there. He's got a couple acquisitions he's working on on private lands. He also supports and interfaces with local climate organizations all over the country as our he's affiliates director. Too. Oh yeah, been with you guys for yeah seven eight years, years something like that. Oh, is it only that? Yeah, one? I think it's seven or eight years. But I mean, he knows the organization inside and out. He's yeah. he's super solid and he just knows everybody in the Southeast also. So, you know, the regional folks kind of work on their own, but just know everybody where they live. And they're constantly just calling people and working on the ground to set up stewardship projects, acquisitions, mm-hmm. public policy discussions, whatever it is. So it looks different for every person in the organization. Let's get into some of those things. Yeah. There's some programs that you guys have going that I don't know about and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty yeah the stuff i'm really for sure the stuff that might cause a fist fight (laughs) (laughs) the the deep dark hole yeah the deep dark (laughs) hole so what is the climbing conservation grants program yeah and what's the aim of that yeah so um the the grants program is really cool um what we do is give away money basically to local climbing organizations but Mm -hmm. also sometimes land managers or scientists who are looking to do a really good project that'll benefit climbing. And so sometimes um, it's basically local climbing organizations like um, BCC right here in town yeah, or Salt Lake Climbers Association or say, we want to do a big trail project to one of our major crags and we need some money and they'll apply to us for a grant to um, support that project. And we'll basically get the application say, we think this looks good. You guys are doing a good work. Um, we know how you're going to use the money and we'll just send you a check for $5,000 that you can go and spend on a really good trail project. Oh, man. Or sometimes it's um, 
doing research, like uh, researching economic impacts that climbers have in a local community. Sometimes we'll find research projects like that. Interesting. Yeah. And so we have um, uh, like about $55,000 a year that we give away. Um, and it has a really, really big impact. On and you guys try groups. to spread that out across the United mm -hmm. States. Yeah, we, we definitely make sure to spread it out across the United States. And we just bumped that up by $20,000 a year recently, wow. thanks to um, the First Ascent Foundation, which is a partner of ours. And we're super thankful for their support. Unbelievable. And that yeah. part of that grant money comes from guys like me mm -hmm. who pay memberships. That's absolutely right. Okay. That comes from local climbers um, all over the country paying their $35 a year membership. And so part of what we think of here and what I like to think of is like the access fund, like there's no way that climbers could just band together and be like, we want to pool all of our money and like give it away to good projects. Like, mm -hmm. just, <laughs> like that would be great. You, like, yeah. I mean, it would be great, but you just, you can't do it. So like at the access fund, I really, I really love to think of it as like, we are organizing the money for the climbing community and mm -hmm. then making strategic decisions on how to deploy those resources for climbers. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty important, a pretty important role because nobody mm -hmm. else can really do that. Right. And, um, it, it, we can take $35 from people all over the country and just, bring it together and then send it back out in the community in larger chunks in ways that are really effective. Well, it's a beautiful thing about the access fund and the work they've done for all of these years, right? Is yeah. building that trustworthy brand exactly. where climbers hit that donate button and they're not like, wow, I hope, I hope this goes to a good project. Yeah. But climbers don't right. care if it goes to Rumney exactly. or the buttermilks totally. or here at home in Fort Collins, you know, yeah. as long as it's goes serving it's the needed. community. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about one more. What is the Access Fund Jeep Conservation Team Program? Those are yeah. two that I, I don't know much about. Yeah, so this is a really cool project. Um, so the uh, Access Fund Jeep Conservation Teams are uh, teams of tr professional trail builders that um, drive around the country and do uh, high-quality trail work and other stewardship projects um, at crags and on public lands and private lands all over the country. And they also do climber education in gyms. Um, public outreach. So they're kind of like the forward facing folks on the ground in a lot of communities for the access fund. But mostly what they're, what they're doing is going into, for instance, Rumney and doing major trail work and uh, erosion control and, and stabilization work. And Jeep helps to fund that program with us along with several of our corporate sponsors. And nice. uh, they're on the road 10 months a year basically um, doing this hardcore work. So they started out in the spring down in Indian Creek, and they were working on approach trails to places like Scarface and Super Crack Buttress, you know, yeah. the, the world-famous walls down there, <laughs> making sure that not only is the uh, access trails, not only are they sustainable, but they also avoid cultural resources and um, are laid out the way that the BLM, the land manager, wants it down there. Okay. And I, so it's, it's a really cool program. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we keep going more into the the present and future of Access Fund, I gotta know <laughs> how did this whole organization start? You know, was yeah. it just was it just <clears throat> a group of climbers who were like, "Wait, guys, like we can't just <laughs> yeah. can't keep winging this and like destroying areas." Like someone has to kind of step up and be the person who yeah who uh, is the mediator between landowners and climbers. Yeah, you know, it's it's really fun because one of the things I've gotten a chance to do over the last uh, four or five months since I've hit the ground here is talk to a lot of the people who were around when Access Fund got started. When was that? I mean, 1991. So it's been yeah. almost 30 years. Whoa. And um, it originally 
um, was incorporated in 1991 here in Boulder. And um, it was basically to take all of this work around access and put it into its own organization so that it could really um, raise its own money and find its own focus and take on a life of its own because mm-hmm. that access piece was so critical. And the f- crazy thing was we had a staff retreat earlier in January, mm-hmm. right after I started, which was good timing, totally coincidental. <laughs> and it was like, oh, here's the new guy. Let's all get together from all over the country and grill him. But, um, <laughs> Stump the chump. So like Zachary went and combed through all of these amazing outreach materials we had from way back mm-hmm. in the 90s, like right away at the start of the organization's history. And it was pretty much all the same stuff. It's yeah. like buy private land, work on trails, protect public lands. I mean, it was all the same things, but on a much smaller uh, scale. Yeah. And so these pieces, essential pieces of work of what we need to do to protect climbing have, have been a key part of the organization from the very beginning. And now we have 30 years of experience behind us to teach us how to like ramp it up, make it professional and have a bigger impact. It's awesome. funny. I was looking through uh, like old archives of the newsletter and stuff like yeah. that, and it's it's ex- that's exactly right. The same problems we're facing today, yeah, are the same problems they were facing in two thousand six. Maybe not quite as much in the early days with all of right. the overcrowding today, but it, I mean that's why it's called land management and yeah. like not land solutions, totally. right? Because these these are problems we're always going to be chasing, yeah. Always. And so it's funny because like I hit the ground here is in the middle of the winter. I'm like, I want to go climbing. Drove <laughs> down to Shelf Road, mm-hmm. popped open the, the guidebook. And like on the third page, it was like access fund, bought all this property in Shelf Road, like back in the mid 1990s. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> preserved access to hundreds and hundreds of routes at Shelf way back in the day. And it was yeah. like the same thing. It's like private land bordering on public land mm-hmm. and there needs to be sustainable management. You got to like basically get all that land under, under public ownership, build trails, build parking lots, build some infrastructure for climbers, interface with the land managers and make it a sustainable operation. And that's a huge success story, Shelf Road. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is a success we don't story. really talk about it enough, but Access yeah, Fund played no a idea. huge role along with Rocky Mountain Field Institute and some others in making Shelf Road a huge success story. Yeah, it really is. I was thinking about that. And all climbing are like 60% of climbing areas are on public land. Is that the out here in the West out here in yeah, the West? Yeah. That's a lot. Man. Yeah. It's, it's huge. And, um, it, there's also means there's a lot of private land out there. we got to work on too. I mean, we got right. Brian tickles, our guy in Texas and Texas is 95% private land. Yeah. And the Midwest <laughs> you know? too is just yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. And so as a national organization, it's like, we got to be nimble. We got to figure out how to work with private landowners, public land managers, state parks, yeah. cities, county parks. We work with Jefferson County a lot. Um, the city of Boulder, you know, just as local examples. So it's all across the board. I mean, it's every, every crag is different. Yeah. Uh, it takes a lot of, uh, it takes a lot of nuance to figure that out. All right, let's get into the nitty gritty, man. <laughs> so I'm going to kick this off with what Ty, Tyler, the stewardship yeah. director, was recently quoted in saying. He said, we're at a tipping point. The overwhelming majority of our country's climbing areas were developed decades ago yep. under the radar and were not created to withstand the sheer number of climbers using them today. For the access fund, how does that rank as a quote unquote problem yeah. that you guys are trying to wrap your heads around right now because it's like <clears throat> happening in real time. Um, I think in the big picture, it's the number one issue for us. Okay. So when we think out three, five, 10 years down the road, 
what are the things that we're thinking about that are going to present challenges to access, threats to access, or just going to impact climbing generally that we're kind of trying to have an impact on. The growth in the sport is the number one thing. And um, what that means for uh, not only access, but our experience as climbers at the crag every day. Yeah. Um, because not only do we want to preserve access, we want to preserve and protect climbing. Mm-hmm. And climbing is about more than just access. It's about that that intangible that we all love so much about the sport. Yeah, the iconoclastic nature of it. Like, yeah. you can't tell me what to do. I'm a climber. Right. <laughs> and, like, those amazing places that we hang out, yes. too, right? I mean, it's, like, such incredible landscapes. And the last thing we want to do is to find ourselves five or ten years down the road and be like, oh, man, we missed the boat. Like, we ruined a couple of these places or we've really, like, unintentionally let this slip through our fingers and we and we missed an opportunity. Uh, and so that growth in the sport is something we're really thinking hard about every day, how to stay in front of it and um, how to prevent unintentional impacts to our crags and how to bring the community together and, um, you know, uh, help people feel inspired to chip in and make a difference. So let's, let's talk about who we can blame. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people. Yeah, I know exactly. Right. It's what we were chatting about before we started, we hit the record button. (laughs) Yeah. But let's do, just get that out of the way. Get it out of the way. Because everybody wants to talk about it. Let's get it out of the way. So we as climbers are to blame. Right here, the three of us. Maybe not me so much. Phoebe, definitely. I'll take, uh, it. I'll take all the weight. Yeah, yeah. It's so, always your buddy who's more to blame than you are. Exactly. You should see the way this guy behaves. Um, just kidding. He behaves, behaves like an angel. I'm sure he's an upstanding citizen. He is an upstanding citizen for sure. So first of all, all of us are to blame. Yes. Second of all, um, and this is, I don't care if this is fair or not. We're just going to get all of the tokens out of the way. Yeah. Uh, climbing gyms are to blame. Totally. For not taking more of a responsibility role. Yeah. Um, God, what, who else were we talking about? Honold, right? Isn't Honold? Ale- yes, yes, Alex Honold. Totally. And he his, won an Oscar, man. How can he not Oscar. be to blame? It's all about, it's all, we got to blame the Oscars. Yeah. It's so, the Academy's fault. <laughs> I wish we could blame them. Um, so climbing media. Climbing media, maybe. Yeah. Uh, social media yep. is to blame. Professional climbers who use social media, who are demanded upon to use social media. Totally. Are to blame. The brands. The brands are to blame for not doing more. Like yeah. I said, fair or unfair, let's get this. Who else is to blame? Who else can we blame? Anybody? My dog. dog. Dogs are to blame. <laughs> dog owners are to blame. Your dog specifically. You know, actually, dog dogs owner. are innocent. Dog owners. Yeah, dog owners. Um, dogs do their best. So blah, 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 blah. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. now we have the blame game out of the way. Totally. So we were talking about. Oh, we about, forgot about the New York Times. New York uh, Times. Right. We can't yeah, blame the New York Times, man. Who, Published the front page story totally. about the Don Wall. Yeah, exactly. Forgot his who name. is that guy? Who's that it's guy? It's climbing. It's New York all his times. fault. Yeah, when how, wet holds break. How dare he his door's call Tommy Caldwell while he's like on the portal? On the portal, Tommy had to throw like, his respect, freaking phone away. Respect the guy's privacy. <laughs> what a dick. <laughs> um, just kidding. Okay, so why is uh, at this point why is blaming other entities? <laughs> yeah the dog chasing its own tail. Well, I mean, we, we, we've been talking about this a little bit on our website and our blog posts and everything. And, you know, blaming is, um, it can make you feel better in the short term, but it's not going to actually <laughs> fix the problem. You know, so you can sit around and, and, um, and get PO'd and, and blame a bunch of people, but, um, nothing's ever going to change that way. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, what we're trying to get people to realize is that whoever, however we ended up where we are, and like you said, we all share part of this um, 
part of this thing about climbing becoming so popular. We mm-hmm. all have to chip in to find the right solution, right? So we're all responsible for fixing it and making it better, regardless of how we ended up where we are today. And so that's how what do we're trying to channel people that? focused on, on the How future. do people channel their frustration? Yeah. Like, <clears throat> okay, so an illogical frustration. When I go to a climbing area and see yeah. 20 people cute or uh, playing hooky, a 5'9 in Clear Creek. That's funny. That route just came up in conversation like 10 minutes <laughs> before you guys even showed up for some reason. That's, that is so weird. I did. That is so weird. I did the, the math on this. Dave actually, actually has I mean, been hiding in the, uh, uh, really, the rafts. This seems to happen to me all the time. Like these random coincidences, like something hey, will just like pop up in conversation. The climbing like world times. is a freakishly small world. It's so incestuous. <laughs> yeah, the, we all know each other. Yeah. Um, but playing hooky. So it's a multi-pitch 5.9 in Clear yeah. Creek Canyon, yeah. which is like the Denver Metro sport climbing area. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it takes a Tyrolean to get across. Yep. Whoever developed playing hooky, God bless their heart, never expected the throngs of crowds. So never. my guess is that every weekend day, Saturday and Sunday, there are eight parties yeah. it, of at least two people on playing hooky. Yeah. That is 1,600 people a year. Yeah. On a single route. Yeah. I forgot my point. <laughs> but kind of sounds like Mount Everest. <laughs> oh my God. Mount the overcrowding Everest. issue. Sorry, I went on... there. I know. I should have saved that at least no. until a little bit later in the podcast. That's perfect because this is a this is a head to toe issue, man. I know. From the right? top of Mount Everest I to know. the smallest little boulder. talking about this thing too earlier. It's like, that blows up on Instagram. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think it starts. There, I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of pieces that feed into the solution. So, it starts at a very basic level of like, I think when I go out to the crag, you know, I try to um, kind of be aware of how I'm reacting to this scene around me, you know? And so, like, the first thing I love to do is just try to be chatty with people when I show up. Yes. Um, if you make small, ta- small talk with folks and just say, hey, how's it going? Or, you know, how's your morning going? Mm-hmm. Or whatever. Um, if something does come up, it's so much easier oh, to talk point. to them about anything if you've already just broken the ice by Have saying, hey, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of it is just being nice and, and t- walking up and kind of like, oh, if they're open to conversation, just chatting them up a little bit or finding out where they're from or, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, and so then that really helps uh, just set a nice tone for being at the crag with other people. And then the other thing I try to do is like, if something really gets me PO'd, is to like not react right away. So that's, <laughs> you know, it is, it cool it's off. hard, right? And uh-huh. it's like, this is also a thing like I've learned over 20 years of work also, which is like something really gets you and you're, get, you're getting pissed off and it's really making you upset and you really want to say something, like sit back and wait for like five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes before you say something. Or, um, and then just like let it sit there for a second. What's, uh, what would be an example of that? Because I can think of issues that you would need to ma- act immediately yeah. on. But let's say somebody throws a crash pad. Let's say they're, they're at the buttermilks, yeah. which in my opinion has gone well past the tipping totally. point. Um, <clears throat> and they throw it on a crash pad on foliage, a yeah. bush. Yeah. Which, I mean, there are like six left in the buttermilks. <laughs> six bushes <laughs> yeah. left. Totally. Um, how would you – and, you know, that there's – horde of climbers there yeah but there's one dude throws down the crash pad on a bush how would you handle that situation so i mean or a similar situation totally i mean even in that situation you see it and you want to react right away yeah and you can take 
30 seconds, 60 seconds, two or three minutes or five minutes and sit back and be like, how am I going to actually like Mm -hmm. engage this guy in conversation in a way that's productive and not just venting? Yeah. And so even taking a couple minutes, um, and then, I mean, even in that situation, like making some small talk first before asking him if he knows about the concern around vegetation at the area versus be like, yo dude, move your crash pad you know, like asking him if he's aware mm-hmm. of the fact that there's a concern around impact on vegetation from, from where we put our bouldering pads as a way to get into it. So I like the other, you know, the other thing I like to do is just ask people questions Yeah, that kind of leads them towards what my concern is as opposed to um, just telling them what I think they should do. I mean, and so that can help. We got, I mean, think about as soon as you, if you approach them and not a kind of open manner, you know, you immediately turn people into very defensive, Yeah, you know, they get defensive and then they really exactly. stand their ground, even though like, let's be honest, the, the reality is there, but yeah. people don't want to be like told they're right. wrong. Right. Exactly. Well, the thing is too, in a life-saving situation, like, you know, yeah. if somebody's if back clipping, <laughs> if, somebody's, totally if somebody's back clipping on the third bolt, you can say to the Blair, yo, your buddy just back clipped for sure or Z clipped or whatever they're doing. Right. Or someone's like threads the blade device incorrectly or whatever. Yeah. I mean, and it's like, the, you got to, sometimes you got to, I've had to do that numerous times. Well, and if the climber in. is like, yo, I know how to climb. Right. You, like, I don't, yeah, that doesn't really hurt my feelings. If somebody gets right. angry at me for doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Safety issues are a different thing. And I totally agree. Like, but these issues are a little bit different. Like, um, if you see a dog running off leash right. in a county or state park where yeah. dog, the laws, they have to be leashed like up right. on Flagstaff mountain, right above yeah. these offices. Yeah. And if there's a dog digging a hole, totally, you can't say like, Hey, did you know that your dog isn't supposed to dig a hole? I mean, of course they know. Yeah. It's yeah. It, it's so it's I mean, the flip side of it, right. Is like, we're kind of talking about like, how do you approach people that are kind of being jerks of the crag? And, uh, yes. and provide this some advice. And the flip side of that is like, when we all go to the crag, we also have to be thinking of for like, how, mm-hmm. how are we carrying ourselves Absolutely. and making sure that like, we're not having that same impact on other people. And so the flip side of that conversation is just, you know, being aware of like how you go out to the crags and you know, how you're going to yes. make sure that you are aware of other people's experiences. Right. Cause it's like, you go out with your partner and you want to go out with a partner who has your experience at the forefront of their mind when they're going out to the crag, right? And so you guys are going out together, mm-hmm. whoever it is, uh, and you're and you're thinking about your partner's experience, you're thinking about your experience, and it's like you guys move through the day together, right? That's the best kind of partnership for climbing. Yes. And so I think we need to kind of carry ourselves like that, but thinking about all those other people that are out there with us as our partners in a sense, and our community yeah. members and our friends, even if we don't know them, but they're climbers, and be like, I care about what my impact on your experience is when I'm here at the crag. Cause like you could just walk up uh, with your music blaring and someone might be <laughs> ready to send their friggin' project that they've been working on for yes. three months. And it <laughs> might be the perfect no, it's, it's scene where they're like, everything's coming together, right? The moment, the, the conditions, their yeah. partner, all the training they put in and they're ready to send. And you walk up blasting like, you know, who, what, you know, like Slip Metallica back, or whatever, right? And you walk <laughs> up with your boombox <laughs> blasting Metallica and you're like, oh man, did you just ruin like three I, months of work for that person? And yeah. that just experience just slipped through their fingers. And so we just got to think about everybody out there as like mm-hmm. our friends and like think about their experiences. Yes. I've seen that exact moment happen 
at least two times in the last six months in my yeah. memory. It happened to Todd. It happened to Todd, our friend of ours. He was like <laughs> in his zone. He was so yeah. ready. He got the beta dialed. This was he was warmed up. This was kind of going to be his like last really good go because he's getting tired. <laughs> and a he dog. starts going. He looks super solid. And then three guys walk up. They have dogs unleashed, which is you know it can be fine if the dogs understand basic totally. concepts, which yeah. are like don't go on crash pads. The three dogs immediately go underneath him. And so immediately in his mind, his concern is like, I don't want to land on these dogs. Also, the guy's like yelling at his dogs to get them off. Right. And just ruined whatever <laughs> right? atmosphere was there. We're sorry, Todd. We're sorry, Todd. Poor Todd. And, <laughs> and he's uh, never been back. And vice versa. I've yeah. had a crew of at Joe's Valley, you know, my girlfriend Morgan has been working this project and she's getting really close. And then 15 Salt Lake people show up and that's fine, but they don't really have any regard to anybody else except yeah. their crew and they come in they literally stand underneath the boulder problem so it's like uh, i have to ask them to move because right. we want to try it it's like hey guys I, we can't right. actually go without falling <clears throat> on you yeah <laughs> like you there's so much room over here yeah <laughs> but yeah sorry. so i mean but you know some of that is just being a good person man like you yeah. go out there and you're mm -hmm. like you just be aware of like what impact you have on other people and Part of that is maybe traveling in smaller groups, mm -hmm. you know, when you yes. need to, because not all these crowds can sustain 20 people and still have everybody with the, yeah. uh, you know, having a good experience. Um, so there's a lot of little things like that. It's both sides of the issue. Like, how do you carry yourself? And then how do you, how do you talk to other people when things come up? And we just all got to kind of figure it out together. I think, know? I think you mentioned earlier how, you know, climbing gyms potentially should take some ownership over the amount of yeah. new climbers they're generating because right. previously, I mean, I was on the tail end of this, I think where getting into climbing was an experience where you were brought into outdoor climbing through a mentor. Yeah. And now exactly. you, it's the most common way is you go to the gym, you start climbing and then you see online like, Oh, people go climb here. Like, I guess I'll just show up. Right. So you kind of skip the whole introductory, like driver's ed to climbing outside. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, total mentorship gap. Yeah, the mentorship gap. Huge mentorship gap, right? Mm -hmm. We've been talking about this a lot too. It's almost unsustainable with millions of climbers. How it do you, is. back in the day, there were pockets of climbers that knew each right. other. And if a new person exactly. came into the crew, <laughs> right. they were sure as hell going to get mentored because the other guys didn't want to exactly. see people like blaying wrong on their HB Marshall. Right. Or <laughs> right. like killing somebody at their crag. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, um, there, there's a huge mentorship gap we're looking at climbing gyms as uh, critical partners. Yes. So moving forward, because we have to be able to take advantage of the fact that the gyms are the best opportunity to connect one-on-one -on -one with new climbers. And um, we mm -hmm. have to try to help pass on what we love about the sport to new climbers. And so the gyms is the best place, one of the best places for us to, to connect with folks. And so, you know, we're way beyond like it's the gym's fault for all these for the growth in climbing mm -hmm. and all these new climbers um no we're thinking about gyms as partners but on the, the flip side of that is that you know i've heard some gym owners say we don't you know my clientele doesn't go outside so <laughs> you know wh why, why am i going to work with you know whomever to try to help address this problem because only 15 or 20 percent of the folks that climb in my gym go outside 
Um, and so that's, and I've heard that a lot. Really? Yeah. So well, we need more of those gyms in America. Yeah. Then that'll solve <laughs> so, the problem. And so I'm like, look, like I'm not going to blame the gyms yeah. for the growth because no. we're all responsible for that. But the flip side is that we're also all responsible for, for the solutions and the gyms are just as responsible as the access fund, as the climbers, mm-hmm. as the brands, the local climbing organizations. We all are responsible. We all got to do our part. And for the gyms, that means helping us reach new climbers. Uh, even if they think only a small portion of those folks are going to go outside, some mm-hmm. of them will, and that will contribute to the problem. So they're a part of the solution. That's the best fishing ground in climbing though. If you want to catch the fish, you go to the area where the fish are. Exactly. <laughs> that is the climbing gym. I don't care right. if you're a trad climber. I don't care yeah, if you're a totally. boulder, a Everyone sport climber yeah. or just a gym climber. It's like the trout pond. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can catch one with your fish with a yeah. little bit of kibble. Yeah. Um, I mean, people are there looking for <laughs> yeah, they folks to help out. them yeah. get outside. Well, in my, a lot of cases, right? They're like, I really want to check this out. I'm going to mm-hmm. start in the climbing gym and hopefully I'll find some friends or get some instruction and that'll help me get outside. Do you guys help climbing gyms? Uh, because I've heard this concern as someone who works at a climbing gym where it seems like they're concerned with taking on some of the liability of saying they help oh, people yeah. go outside. Yeah. Um, I know that is potentially an issue where gyms are like, we don't want to get sued because someone hurt themselves outside because they thought we told them if they were safe. And the insurance yeah. is prohibitive. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely an issue. The climbing gyms are, you know, um, always thinking about their liability risks um, all the Fair time with, with whatever they do. But I mean, I don't think there's a liability risk with telling people if you go outside, take care mm-hmm. of the environment. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's like who's gonna sue a gym for saying like they told me not they told me to pack out my poop and like I got sick so yeah. I'm gonna sue the gym or whatever. I mean, yeah, so it's kind know, of a convenient excuse. Yeah, I mean, there's no liability risk for a gym to teach like leave no trace practices, right? Mm-hmm. So gyms can do their part. Like, there's no worry about it. What about okay? So let's spitball for a second, and maybe this exists. What about a pilot program? Maybe not in Boulder, but let's say a pilot program in Denver, where the Access Fund partners with every single uh, singular climbing gym, not yeah. Lifetime Fitness or the, any of those things, but yeah. at the eight or nine climbing gyms in Denver. And they say, everybody who's here is grandfathered in. All new members, if you become a member, have to sit through a 15, 20, 30-minute orientation process. Yeah. And it has to be all the gyms because you can't escape the orientation process at movement yeah. by going to the spot <clears throat> or by going to Earth right. Tracks. Yeah. Is that something... I'm, I mean, basically I'm talking about forcing people to do something, which is the antithesis of climbing ethos. Yeah. It's kind of like indoctrination. Yes. <laughs> yes. I am talking about yeah. indoctrination. Could we also like pin their li- eyelids open and <laughs> <Yeah>. clockwork orange <laughs> and yes. strap them down yes. to the chair? I will put the eye drops in yeah. their eyes while they're <laughs> watching footage the of people littering and then shocks. But listen, yeah, yeah, you exactly. have to qualify for the Boston Marathon. <laughs> totally, Why don't yeah. you have to qualify to climb outdoors? So, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways that we can do a better job of educating climbers and we're thinking about how to do that. And, okay. um, yeah. And so we're, we're, you know, we're thinking about how do we scale up getting the message out to new climbers, especially in partnership with the gyms and frankly, other educational, um, organizations, right? Cause a lot of climbers come through universities or colleges or That's regional true, mountaineering clubs, right? Um, mm-hmm. guides, guide services. So there's all kinds of places, not just gyms where climbers are getting education and they're getting introduced to climbing. And, uh, there's a question as to whether they're getting, um, outdoor ethics and leave no trace principles and responsible climbing principles as a part of that educational curriculum. Um, I don't think it's consistent across the spectrum. No way. Um, we're thinking about how to make it consistent. 
that's a really big lift, but it's something that we're, um, I think, uh, digging into to try to figure out. And there's a lot of other people and organizations who also have to step up, but we got to tackle that. I mean, I, think I mean, it's like the gyms are going to really have to be mm-hmm. bought in. Have to right? be a part. They got to be. They don't have it. to be the solution. They have to be part. They got to be solution. part of the solution. Exactly. But I think many. Cli- I mean, we'd all agree here that climbers are some of the most ecologically forward-thinking for sure athletes in the world. Like Definitely. climbers, ninety-nine percent of climbers try to do their best. Right. But I, I think if you'd say, you know, what is the leave no trace ethic? A lot of climbers would say that. A lot of new climbers might say that's for backpackers. That's for right. campers. That's not for us to cry. We're just going to the crag and leaving. Right. And these ethics need to be taught, not only to back, like through Ray Jardine's book about fast and light camping, but sport climbing. They need to be taught. They need to be taught, but they also need to be talked about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, social media is huge, right? Yes. And it's, it's dominating our conversation and then it trickles into the way that we think. Mm-hmm. And it has an impact on folks that are coming into the sport and the younger folks. But none of us really are t- going to Instagram and being like, it's really important to take care of the crags. Um, some of us are, you know, that does happen. And the local climbing organizations are getting pretty savvy with social media. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that's where the professional climbers, I think that's where some of the folks that have been around a long time that are running the, the local climbing organizations and have been um, staples of a place like Boulder can, um, you know, weave that into some of your social media. Why not talk about what it means to like be yes. a good climber, be a good climbing advocate, take care of your local crag. Why yeah. not talk about like how it makes you feel good to chip in and help out with the stewardship project. You know, you don't always have to go to Instagram and be like, I fired this, you know, this, this super rig. badass route, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah, that's cool too. But, um, it's also cool to like install a pit toilet, you know, yes. <laughs> it's, 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 it's we like ta- both sides of the coin. We were talking with Jamie Emerson, of course. Uh, I don't know if you know Jamie, but he's, he wrote the Rocky mountain national park and Mount Evans guidebook. And oh, he's yeah. been right at the vanguard of land management and national park issues yeah. for climbers really, really does a great job. Yeah. Him, he and his girlfriend, uh, curse me. I can't remember her name, but we're talking about a program. Like why don't, if an athlete is sponsored on a high enough level, why doesn't that company say, listen, we're going to give you your sponsorship, but twice a year you have to do a conservation project. Yeah. In tandem with the, you don't have to build it from the ground up. Totally. You have to be out there and you have to promote it on social media. Yeah. And this is a way that like the climbing companies could just slightly get involved with no mess or fuss. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's great. And I mean, there's, and there's a ton of opportunity and frankly, like, I mean, so we were at the, um, in Vail, uh, yesterday talking with the International Federation of Sport Climbers, the IFSC pulled together a community discussion because they're like, man, climbing's going to the Olympics. What kind of risks is that going to create for the climbing community? How do we deal with it? What's the community input? And we were there to talk about, you know, crags are at a tipping point. Um, the Olympics is going to make it harder to take care of those places. And we need everybody to dig in. And the athletes that were in the room were super fired up about it. And they're like, yeah, we're willing to help out, uh, which is great. That's awesome. And so I think it's just, you know, we're looking to figure out how we can provide a little leadership at the Access Fund to give athletes that opportunity. I think brands have to step up and provide a little bit of leadership and say, you know, we're, we want our athletes to do that. We're willing to dedicate a little bit of resources and money for that to happen. And, um, and we're willing to go out and talk about it also and like put our names out there on the line as a company that cares about stewardship and conservation of, of our climbing areas. You guys are to do a little butt kissing. You guys are doing a great <laughs> job right now, bringing the highest end athletes to social media yeah, 
and uh, it's Alex Honnold, Tommy Caldwell, a number of other people have yeah. done short blurbs yep. for the Access Fund. Yeah. I mean, tens of thousands of people see those. Yeah, and we're so thankful. I mean, it means so much to us to have the support of the professional athletes and the and the you know the community of professional athletes. Um, it's also a big job, right? Because folks are crazy busy, scattered, yeah. traveling constantly. Yes. And so we have to figure it out at the access fund is like, how do we make the asks in the right way? How do we plug them in in a way that's easy and also effective? So they feel like their voices matter and have an impact. Um, but also it's not too much of a burden for them. And so we got to figure out how to like make sure that we're easy to work with and accountable to the athletes and give the athletes something that they can work with and feel proud of as well. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. We take it really seriously. And the last thing we want to do is waste Alex Honnold's time or waste Honnold's time, you know, it's like, that's totally not worth it for us. But, um, it's at the same time, it's super fun to sit down with these guys. I mean, we were, went out skiing with Sausage Julian and Rocky Mountain National Park and Tommy and uh, folks from Native Outdoors to talk about Native lands issues. And it was a really great conversation. And we just took the time, all of us, to sit down in a room after skiing and climbing both during the day and just have a conversation. So to be able to carve out a little bit of time with pro athletes like that yeah. that are so busy, it's really cool. We, we feel really thankful and we just really feel like uh, we, we feel a big responsibility to make that effective for them and for the community as a whole. Yeah. They're driving the sport, you know, their voices matter for sure. Totally. Right. And they're the messengers. Mm -hmm. I think that that most of the people, especially the new climbers, they're going to listen to those folks, right? As the the sport grows, they're going to be the Michael Jordans. Yeah. If you think about what's going to pull everyday climbers out to go do a trail building day, you have a kind of faceless email that's like, oh, I should go maybe. Yeah. Or you're like, you can go <clears throat> build a trail with like Alex Honnold. You get <laughs> right, right. The amount of turnout you could get potentially yeah. based off that would be. Um, I mean, we've seen this because we you know, do gym events at times. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, come and like support the access fund at the gym. You know, like 10 or 15 people will show up sometimes, sometimes more. But, you know, he's like, oh, come hang out with like Beth Rodden at a gym in California. And like 100 <laughs> people show up. You yeah. know, it's like everybody just shows because there's yeah. a professional climber there. And you're like, oh, go go climb with a pro in the gym <laughs> and talk about stewardship and uh-huh. conservation. And like, that's a really compelling package for folks. Yeah. And so people show up. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, the pro athletes are so great. They're super supportive, man. They have such a great platform and most of them really love doing something positive with the platform that they do have. Yeah. So I got a ton that's of respect good to for hear. that. So let's talk about when you get into climbing, you're kind of running away from formal sports, right? Yeah. You're escaping regimented rules. You're escaping the referee. You don't have people breathing down your neck. You're, you have freedom. Yeah. And I don't want that to change. I don't, nobody does for sure. Um, I don't think it should change. Even if it were to change, there aren't enough Rangers. There aren't enough land people who manage, uh, climbing areas, uh, to possibly help. So we need, to build climbing advocates. We need to build an army of climbing advocates who take the, not the ranger's place, quote unquote, but can assume a leadership role. How is the access fund doing that? Yeah. So a <clears throat> couple ways. The, um, the best way that we're doing that is serving as an umbrella organization for local climbing organizations all over the country that are basically affiliates of the access fund, which means they're their own separate nonprofit organization, mm-hmm. but they are, um, they have, they, they partner up with us as affiliates and we give them resources. We, um, 
help them understand how to run an organization, how to talk to land managers. We let them uh, help them team up with our conservation teams, um, help them execute land acquisition. So all these things. Um, we couldn't do our work without the LCOs, the local climbing organizations. There's mm-hmm. now 130 of them around the country, which wow. is mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. I had no idea. 130. Oh yeah. My God. So um, that's the main way is that we're we're basically supporting all these local climbing organizations. And so um, I'll give you an example. We were just out in Devil's Lake, Wisconsin earlier uh, in the spring for a Midwest Regional Climbing Advocate Summit. Mm-hmm. So we're like, let's go to the Midwest and talk to climbing advocates. And so when I heard this idea, when I started in January, I was like, well, that's going to be interesting. I wonder what it'll be like in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. How many people are going to show up yeah. in the middle of the spring in Devil's Lake, Wisconsin, to talk about climbing advocacy. Yeah. And we had like 95 people there. That's awesome. It was amazing. It was amazing. And there were people from South Dakota, from Arkansas, Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. I mean, there were people from all over the place. Mm-hmm. And there was a couple um, land managers there, a city administrator. Um, and there, I mean, and there were people, you know, the Access Fund had a ton of people. There. It was, it was totally mind blowing. And so oh, there was, and everybody hear. in the room was super psyched and fired up on protecting climbing, being climbing advocates and kind of sharing the sport and taking care of all these places. Uh, and so... Most of those people were affiliated in some some way with a local climbing organization. Mm-hmm. Either they were on the board, or they were volunteers, or they'd been, you know, engaged in starting the LCO. Uh, and so that process of having like organizations and local communities that take on a life of their own. So many people come into contact with those organizations, and then that just gets them inspired to continue the work. They feel like they're part of a community. They have an example of what what can get done. They have mentors, mm-hmm. and then that just feeds on itself and builds over time. Good so Midwest. the army. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, you know, BCC here in Boulder is uh-huh. an affiliate of, of um, the Access Fund. They do amazing work. We love supporting them. SLCA, Salt Lake Climbers Association, Southeast Climbers Coalition. I mean, there's a lot of um, LCOs now that have been around for a long time. They're starting to take on paid staff um, and they're doing amazing work. And they are um, ramping up uh, the amount of work that they can do. Yeah. And so it's really cool to see. So we support them. And they just multiply the impact. It's really cool to see. That's great. That's how you build an army of advocates, mm-hmm. right? For sure. Because I mean, we can't as yeah, the can. access fund have somebody on the ground with every land manager in the country. How, how no. big is the staff here? How big is the uh, staff? it's about twenty six, twenty seven people? Yeah, and they're spread out all over the country. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's no way that we could have mm-hmm. people in Iowa <laughs> yeah. on the ground dealing with the land managers, yeah. right? Or in Devil's Lake, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. There's no way we could have somebody there and in somebody in Ohio and Pennsylvania, Missouri. And I mean, it's just like, it's not possible. So having local organizations all over the country is a huge, 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 important piece of the puzzle. And then we at the Access Fund can help that work along by supporting them as best as we can. That brings, we're both Midwesterners. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. We're, we're from Iowa. Iowa. Really? Yeah. For, there's good bouldering in Iowa, right? There's good sport there's a sport climbing. <laughs> There's a sport Let's not use the adjective good. But I learned how to trad <clears throat> climb at Devil's Lake in the 90s. You did? Yes. That is Dude, where Did you I ever learned... meet Magic Ed? I don't think Ed, so. Ed, right? <laughs> Do you know who Magic Ed was? I don't think so. So no. Ed, right, he, he was a root developer in Potrero. 
And oh, he, really? And he would make this annual migration back and forth from Devil's Lake to Mexico. To and anyway, Devil's he was Lake. the first one that, that told me about Devil's Lake because I was climbing with him down in Mexico. And he was like, you got to go check out Devil's Whoa. Lake. Yeah. So like Magic we went up there. Ed. Magic Ed. Yeah. Some of your listeners will know Magic Ed. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're probably the only two that don't know Magic Ed. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So let's talk about um, let's talk about money. Okay. Real cool. Quick. I think we have a little bit longer to go. Yeah. Um, you guys are getting rich off the podcast, right? Correct. Oh, correct. Dude. Okay. Did you not see our Lambo hey, we rolled over? I figured, that's, I figured that was the money message you guys were going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> the message is that I can't even afford an extra pair of headphones for myself right now. <laughs> um, well, your your sponsors should be generous. Yeah. Yeah. My mom, your mom, and our girlfriends. <laughs> um, so climbing in the outdoor industry as a whole is becoming like an economic force. Yeah. It, it just... Um, $680 billion, I think, is what it's like. Somewhere around there is yeah. what it's generating. The outdoor industry as a whole. Outdoor industry as a whole. Yeah. So is there any... How do we better find that money and use it for climbing? Yeah. It, it, climbing advocacy, conservation, yep. and ecological awareness. Yeah. Because I'm a, sick of hearing about how much money we have in, see, you know, in the small myopic version saying that Craig's getting destroyed. Totally. This is a frustration. So money is a big issue. I think <clears throat> the first thing is for us as climbers and our partners in the outdoor industry to do a good job of uh, telling the story about what a good positive economic force we are. Yes. And how important the outdoor rec economy is. Um, so we have at the Access Fund been um, participating in economic studies with Eastern Kentucky University to kind of take a look at in detail, like mm -hmm. how much money do climbers spend in places like the New River Gorge, the Red River yeah. Gorge. Great uh, question. And it's a, it's a lot of money, like tens of millions of dollars a year. I just And read hundreds about of it. jobs <clears throat> yeah. in, in small rural areas in the Appalachians. So that's really important stuff just to get that message out there. Because uh, then once that message is out there, when an access issue comes up or when there's a new crag on public lands or something like that, all of a sudden you can go to like local businesses. You can go to the chamber of commerce. You can go to your elected officials. You can go to the land managers and you can say, look, outdoor rec is a critical piece of the local economy here. Mm -hmm. You can't just let this thing happen. You can't let climbing go by the wayside. Like we gotta, we gotta make sure this is a part of the puzzle moving forward. Uh, that's really super effective. God, yes. um, but the other thing we got to do, so then, and then there's a couple of other pieces like, so, um, supporting uh, state-based offices of outdoor recreation, right? This has happened in Colorado. It's a really well-known example. It's a state government uh, office that's designed to promote outdoor recreation and the outdoor recreation economy. And so they've popped up in New Mexico and Oregon and Washington and Colorado, a lot of the Western states. And so when we partner up, once we get them established by law and then partner up with them, then the official state agency can help get the word out too and then serve as a sister agency for other land managers and for federal agencies say, no, this is a really important thing. And they can help unlock some government funding. Yes. So yeah. right now we're working on trying to get one in California. And that's been kind of a, a long-term struggle for some reason. And so we're partnering up with a lot of um, uh, other organizations to try to get a California Office of Outdoor Recreation. And that'll be Fantastic. really huge, right? Because that's a, you know, one of the biggest states in the union, of course. So, um, so that's a big piece. And then the other thing is just having an organization like the Access Fund that's like got 30 years of history, 30 years of accountability, and being like, we can do big projects and we can manage them and we're accountable and we're the, you know, hopefully we're the ones that can help unlock a lot of money for climbing and conservation. Yes. And so that's kind of, that's what we're looking at down the road is like big, long-term, 
uh, stewardship projects in places like Indian Creek, the New River Gorge, the Red River Gorge, where it's like it's not a one-off project, right? It's like mm-hmm. a three, five-year long-term thing that's going to take a lot of money, but is also going to take um, have a big impact on a lot of the major problems. So it's it's long-term project management and planning, and it's a, it's a big piece of the puzzle. It's hard work. That, I mean, it's completely holistic. Yeah. And those are the exact kind of answers that we wanted to hear. Right. Like, that is a holistic, overarching problem right. or solution to one single problem. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, is the thing that's so cool that I'm so fired up about is that, like, if you look at a place like Indian Creek, right, mm-hmm. um, stewardship and conservation is – stewardship especially is one piece of the puzzle, right? So we have, like, five, ten years of stewardship work to do with the creek, a lot of work mm-hmm. and we can take that and we can package it up and say we're going to do this over a long period of time and we're going to be super intentional and focused on the long term but we also have a lot of public land management issues yes, and so the other especially. the other program you know our public lands policy program right is separate from our stewardship program under the same mm-hmm. umbrella they can now work holistically towards not only doing the stewardship work, which gets the land managers loving what we do, mm-hmm. but we can also then advocate for long-term land management that benefits outdoor rec and balances oil and gas extraction as an example or a monument designation as another example, right, down in Indian Creek. And so we can have both of these tools deployed moving forward at the same time, and we can help move the puzzle pieces around to make sure it's coordinated and all running towards the same outcome in the same direction for climbers and long-term sustainability. So we have stewardship, public policy, LCO support, right? So we can invest in a local LCO like Friends of Indian Creek, and we can get all these pieces moving together um, towards long-term sustainability. And that's super exciting for us. Well, let's, do you have time for a couple more? Sure. Yeah. Okay. We'll make these quick. The last question, I, I want to hear a, a really happy ending story for the last question. Oh, well, then uh, let me go first. Okay. <laughs> Earlier, you talked about Shelf Road being kind of a huge success story. Yeah. That, and, like, I'm kind of curious, what are maybe some less success stories that the Access Fund has faced? And what are some lessons you guys have yeah, kind of learned from that? Question. Challenges that the Access Fund's faced. So, um, yeah, interesting. I think one of them is climber education. Yeah. So... You know, I think we've taken a couple cracks at it over the past from what I've learned. And um, it's hard to figure out how the best way. <laughs> is. Clockwork What's orange, the Chris. Best way? Yeah, right? We just got to start pinning people's eyes open. <laughs> I think and that might be it. We just came up with a new program. Um, but yeah, I think that climate education piece has been a real challenge for us. Mm-hmm. I could um, see that being a problem too, because you almost don't want to become a, a bad guy. Right. If that makes sense. Yeah. And like being the person who's always like shoving stuff down people's throats is can, can put a bad light on, on you, but exactly. I don't know. Yeah. So I think that's a part of it. Um, and so we really, we really got to figure that out and we got to partner up with other organizations, um, to figure out what the best way forward is. Cause it's, you know, it's an educational issue. It's, mm-hmm. it's an access issue, right? Cause we got yes. to keep climbers, um, on the same page, but it's also an educational issue. And so all the, all the guide services, the educational outfits, the gyms, the universities, we all, we all got to kind of chip in and figure it out. And I disagree. I think it's time for maybe some, ba- if that is what makes a bad guy is the school marm tapping people's, <laughs> uh, tapping people's knuckles with a right. ruler. I think it, tapping. I don't, I don't know. You got to swing a little harder. A little tap isn't going to do much. <laughs> hey, yeah. All you Catholic school kids know what I'm talking right, about. Yeah. Um, maybe <laughs> it's time to, to Maybe there, it's time 
to have some bad guys like that. Yeah. To have some people who are shoving it down the throat. Have somebody take the arrows. Right. I don't think I don't know if that's the <laughs> access fund, but somebody's got to start taking arrows right. and being the bad guy. Yeah. We like we were talking about um we've always wanted freedom, we've always wanted access, but you know, people used to hide their climbing areas like if right. they developed a new area. And that used to grate on me. Totally. Like, oh man, just share it. We'll all have fun there. Like pick the cherries. Right. And then share it. I'm to the point now where I'm like don't share that. Right. Ever. Share it with your friends <laughs> yeah. or with people you trust, but don't do it anymore. Yeah, I mean that that's and that's cool too. I mean, you know, there's a lot of places that we're still gonna be able to go climbing. Exactly. That, uh, exactly. that a lot of people don't know about. Yeah. Where we're gonna find solitude and adventure. Uh even on the weekend. I mean, my wife and I went climbing on Saturday. We live here in Boulder up in the hills. We drove 25 minutes from our house up in somewhere in the St. Vrain drainage and got on this beautiful multi-pitch climb. There was nobody else around. We yeah. got this nice oh, summit. Beautiful. We got views out yeah. over the Indian Peaks wilderness. And it was like right, pretty much right in town and there was nobody there. So, you, you know, you can just poke around a little bit and find I, these spots. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, you're not going to be able to go on Instagram and be like, you know, I sent this, you know, 512 that everybody knows about, but you're still going to have a really cool experience. Don't so, go on Instagram at all and right. take a photo of the, cl- put it in your photo yeah. album like we used yeah, to yeah. do. So, I mean, <laughs> nobody's, you know, nobody's talking about like marching into the backcountry and like building belay platforms, you know, yeah. at these, at these off the radar Alpine climbing venues that are still so special yes that, that we all want to you know a lot of us want to still experience but um and the front country areas that are the really popular iconic mm-hmm. destinations that people come from all over the world and that we all know about that's where we got to do a lot of the work and we still want to preserve that ability to go out and get lost and adventure yeah. and scare I, yourself and you know run it out and and have a great time like we're not be accountable to your own knowledge exactly yes i think there's something to be said about climbers maybe taking a little bit more ownership of where they want to go to i think a lot of climbers are very suggestible yeah and so with the rise of social media you have the rise of climbers just sort of like not going out until they're like oh this is the this boulder looks really cool someone just shared it i'm just gonna go instead of you know like looking into it because like you said right colorado is massive and the amount of areas we have here is insane there's so much climbing here and but people are kind of lazy and they want to go to the same (laughs) places they want to they want all the beta up front so they want to have they don't want to have to like go to a place a couple times to figure it out Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe they go with a big group because one person knows it and then the, all the other people are able to figure it out easily. Yes. So, you know, it's like partner up, break off from the group, go marching off into the backcountry mm-hmm. and go explore. That's I'm guilty too, by the you know, way. I'm yeah, perfectly we are, I, I guilty sure of will. that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so that's, that's... But these are the moments when we're in this conversation where I'm realizing like <laughs> I should make better decisions. <laughs> okay, I was going to ask you about Roy, but we're kind of running up against it a bit. Yeah. Um. So... I want to hear um, a success story. Yeah, that that looked dire. Like you, you look at the the buttermilks or um, the reds, kind of tough right now. You look yeah. at these areas really on the tipping point. Yeah. If you can give me an example of an area that was maybe beyond the tipping point. Yeah. And just resuscitated with a couple of many deep breaths. I'd so love to hear it. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, so one, uh, you know, I moved here from Portland, so I was in the Pacific Northwest for about 20 years. And there was a couple, couple few really, really uh, huge victories where, where areas were on the tipping point. One was in Index, Washington. Uh, where the lower town wall was on private property. And, you know, it's this is iconic. This might be the best granite crag mm-hmm. in the country. But don't tell anybody. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, we'll edit that part out. <laughs> Beep. Beep. Yeah, but it's an amazing spot. And, uh, you know, climbers showed up one day and there's a no trespassing sign. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, the, you know, the place, you know, the company that owned it was getting ready to sell it off or maybe quarry it again. Oh, man. And so this was um, the very first project at the Access Fund's Climbing Conservation Loan Program, CCLP, which is we're actually an accredited land trust. Like mm-hmm. we operate like the Trust for Public Lands for one of our program areas. We were able to come in and loan money out and that enabled the local climbing organization to buy that land wow. out and prevent it from getting quarried. Um, it's an amazing victory. That's... And the guys in, in Washington that pulled that off deserve a ton of credit. The locals on the ground that worked really hard on that project. God, bro. So that's a huge victory. Um, I think Smith Rock has been a huge stewardship victory. Because yeah. what was happening at Smith over the years is that the first bolt was like getting higher and higher and higher. You know, because like the <laughs> yeah. soils are like getting worse and worse. You like you go there yeah. and like, you're like, whoa, when did this happen? Um, and so uh, the local climbers and the state park, to their credit, um, who brought some climbers on staff did an amazing job of rolling out sustained stewardship projects with the spring thing every year, every year, every year, every year, every year. And slowly over time, those have built up one on top of the next one. And now you go there and there's like well-designed staging areas. The erosion's cut down. People can hang out. It's more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a backcountry climbing experience, but it's still a world-class sport climbing destination. Yeah. And it's a lot more sustainable now. And you guys call that like Carter Crag infrastructure. Yeah, basically. I mean, yeah, we, I don't think we use that terminology, but it, yeah, it's like thinking about an area, like where do you park? How you're, how's your day going to unfold as you're, as you're going climbing? How's the hardware, right? How's the staging areas? How's the base? Um, and yeah, it's, it's thinking about climbing from car to car, basically at a place like Smith Rock. So that's another huge success story, I think. And then Trout Creek also, which is a project I worked on where the local climbers, just dug in really hard because BLM wanted to shut down the entire crag because there were golden eagles nesting there. Ah, uh, yeah. And yeah, the yeah. local climbers, to their credit, um, basically were like, look, we totally want to protect golden eagles. The last thing we want to do is like, you know, get dive bombed by golden eagle when you're on lead, like on some gnarly <laughs> exactly. 511 crack climb at Trout Creek. Um, but, you know, we just want to have a reasonable closure in place uh, instead of having a blanket closure that shuts the whole place down, which is what BLM was originally talking about. Jeez. So the locals down there really did a ton of work to make that a, a, a success story. So there's a lot of cases like that. We we, we win a lot of times. So. That's great to hear. Yeah, Waco Tanks is a success story. Yeah, Waco's, yeah, totally, right? A really, really big success story. Yeah. It hurt a little bit. Yep. But it's a huge success story. It is a huge success story. I just wanted story. to hear those stories because, yeah. like, that's what's on the line. But That's I mean, what we can do. Another huge success story, the public lands bill that passed through Congress earlier this yeah. year. 1.3 million acres in New Wilderness, including 600,000 acres in Emory County, Utah, which is where the San Rafael Swell is. Backcountry wilderness climbing. Yep. Um, protected as wilderness with provisions mm-hmm. written in by Congress that protects fixed anchors in the New Wilderness. Yeah. To clarify that climbing and wilderness are consistent with each other. And that the climbing areas that are in that newly designated wilderness will be protected and climbers can continue to use, maintain, and replace fixed anchors. That is an incredible success story. It's the first time we've ever gotten Mm -hmm. that clarity with the Wilderness Act. It happened in an incredibly politically divisive (laughs) context. Oh, it is politically divisive right now? Yeah. (laughs) It's it's so amazing that we got that through Congress earlier this year. And, um, I mean, that's going to protect the San Rafael Swell forever as a wilderness. 
your guy Peter Horgan with the Climbing Advocate podcast. Yep. Just had two episodes on that. Exactly. Listen to that podcast. With Jason Keith, our with Jason senior Keith. policy advisor, who's an amazing guy. Like he and Eric Murdoch dug in long and hard on that project. And just, it's an amazing victory that those guys um, get a lot of credit for. Truly. Yeah. yeah. Listen to the Climbing Advocate if you want more on that. Totally. Because that is full of maybe too much information. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tons cow. of information. Okay. We're All up right. against it. Right on. Um, Thanks for giving us your time, Chris. It was my pleasure. I really appreciate you guys this reaching out awesome. and coming in the office. I love it. Yeah. Sweet. Thank you, Chris Winter. That was a great little interview. Yeah. The one the best thing about this podcast for us is the graciousness of our guests. And he invited us into the Access Fund headquarters to sit down and chat about this stuff with just two dudes to do a podcast. We've been and having a fun little time field tripping, you know? Yeah. Well, that was really nice. It was cool to see everybody there, like, working hard, plugging away for to keep our climbing areas open and safe and sustainable. Correct. So thanks to Chris for that. I have a question for you. It hit me with it. What, for you personally, is the most disturbing part of climbing's popularity exploding in the attendant masses. I'm worried that climbers are going to lose their their kindness to each other. I feel like I can usually show up in a crag and feel comfortable and friendly with the people there. Mm-hmm. But I'm worried that the more people that show up, the more desensitized and detached people become. And then we'll start to see people being kind of more and more mean to each other and that's my greatest fear dave because we aren't just this small little tribe no. anymore we're a big yeah kind of losing you lose your ability to kind of have the same level of empathy dave. yeah yeah that's, i'm about to start crying that's touching man Thank i you. hope that doesn't happen pd because i think that would break that, that would break, break me. you exactly i don't want that i to would happen. become the yeah i would become something else the most disturbing part for me, not the most disturbing part, the part that I most want to work on yeah, is the ability to speak out in a positive, constructive way when I see things that uh, rub the wrong way against the ethos of climbing uh-huh. and also to judge myself when I do those things because I've done everything that I hate in Correct. climbing. I have. Yes. <clears throat> but... Last year when we were in Bishop, we were there for the whole winter and the access funder, somebody had planted these bushes next to the birthday boulders parking area at the buttermilk boulders. Uh Okay. They'd planted all these little scrub oaks. I don't know what they're little trees, uh, little bushes. And they were protected by like this mesh netting. Mm -hmm. So it was really cool. And people, well, one person had his tent in the middle of those. <laughs> and I didn't say anything. And I don't know why I didn't. Because yeah. I was like scared and I didn't want to be a I bad know, guy. Never... We have to figure out a way to be the good guy but speak out. Yeah. That kind of sometimes means getting into some uncomfortable situations. Yeah. Like and, Chris uh, said, give it like five minutes. Well, that happened actually this weekend in Vail. We were at climbing at Red Cliffs and somebody... On the way out, we saw these two people like carrying their tent stuff, and they were like, "Oh, have fun out there." And we got to the boulder, the aircraft carrier, and there was very clearly like a massive fire. They had had a massive fire under the boulder. No. So the entire like 
luckily they kind of had it in a spot where it didn't affect the the main line of the boulder star-crossed lovers but it was enough where the holds were like yellowed by the smoke the footholds were like blackened so were they was, climbers no they were just no yeah camping under the boulder and lighting a fire and then it's one of those things where maybe it's not explicitly stated like that area is blm land they're more yeah. than welcome to that's know. exactly right so but but maybe there's there's a way to to just engage them in a discussion to be like just so you guys know like this is a boulder that people really enjoy climbing on um <laughs> like if the smoke kind of ruins that that boulder <laughs> yeah it damages the rock but you know just so you know i, I don't know that's a that's a tough one i guess that's a really difficult one but i mean these are all discussions that we're all hopefully uh or hopefully not going to have but we are going to have and blah 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 we have to figure out a better way to do it yeah let's wrap this thing up yeah i it just I, i'm so happy you guys listened and maybe we can continue this conversation at the gyms with each other yeah. um online on social media let's raise the, let's raise the volume on the dialogue maybe we should link them to actually the access fund yeah we will yeah if we'll you're not a member anyone who's a serious climber myself included i'm not a goddamn member dave <gasps> but after we hit that red button i'm gonna become a member of the access fund because there's really no excuse Okay, I want to say one thing before we go. If you donate by June 16th, your donation, if you become a member and donate, your donation will be doubled. 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 Um, that's huge. That really helps. The low donation to become a member is 35 bucks. No. 50 bucks, you get a free t-shirt. Anything you do by June 16th will be doubled. And you heard in the conversation where that money goes. So if you have the means and you have the funds, the let's greens. do it. Let's do it. Let's, Let's give these it. guys our money so they can spend it in the right ways. Okay. Okay. If you want to get a hold of us, oh. <laughs> thunderclingpodcast at gmail.com. <laughs> Don't ask it like a question. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we are on Instagram at the thundercling. So if you guys have any feedback or want to get a hold of us or I am us, do it there. Yeah, just hit us up. We're, we're nice. We'll be back in we're two weeks. looking for some friends. Yeah, we like yeah. friends trying to get better at climbing you know yeah. we're not trying to just be here by ourselves just want to meet so i just want yeah, i just want to meet some people and don't like hang out like, yeah you don't have to act like you're i'm all by myself and also we don't have to just like hang out at the crag you guys can like come yeah. over and maybe we like yeah. grill out i don't I really of, have many friends been, I, I don't want to like call you guys out but it's been a kind of one-way relationship where it's like we put out this podcast and then we never hear from you guys and it's well just like I don't really have anybody to talk to when this pot, because no, I don't. I, don't well, I mean, like we couldn't, we sh we would never hang out after if we're not hitting the record button. Like as no. soon as that red button gets hit, it's just silence. And then oh, Dave you guys call me Repulsive Dave behind my back. <laughs> Remember that when you said, "Hey, watch out, Repulsive oh, Dave is God, coming Dave's over. Let's get out of hey, here." Hey, Dave, let's start the podcast. And with that, I'm gonna hit this button. Okay. Bye, I guess. When the rain it had just gushed Dropped his crash pad on a sagebrush And it was crushed
ticked up his rig and he smoked a blunt, tossed the rush on the ground. Johnny's dog took a shit and killed a squirrel and made a barking sound. Oh, Johnny, you ain't doing no favors to ecology. Johnny, you peck of wood, you're killing these climbing sensibilities. Don't be, don't be such a gumby. Johnny didn't sin, so he forged a brand new social trail. Found the next block and took a dump on some native flowers and a snail. Cranked up his tunes and stoked him up high of the tiger. Johnny didn't send my friends cause his karma punched him in the dick. Johnny, you ain't doing no favors to ecology. Oh, Johnny, you peck of wood, you're killing climbing sensibilities. Don't be, don't be such a gumby. Don't be, don't be such a gumby. Don't be, don't be. Yeah, seriously, John, what the fuck?